Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 17. And uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, I'd just um, let you know that uh, part of our, our kind of modus operandi here at Veritas is, is we seek to uh, often, most often, just kind of plant ourselves in the book of the Bible and kind of slowly, systemically uh, work our way through that book. And that's what we're doing with uh, the minor prophet Amos uh, this morning and uh, in this season. And uh, that task brings us to Amos chapter 7, verses 7 through 17. And when you've arrived there, feel free to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. And let's read with reverence, let's read with joy, because these are the words of our God. Amos begins by saying, This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this beautiful and strange text. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see the, the wondrous things, the treasures contained here by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And to that end, would you help me to be faithful to your word and all of us filled with your spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, one of my favorite preachers of, of all time is uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He died almost 40 years ago. He was a, a minister at Westminster Chapel in London, and, and he was a great preacher, perhaps one of the greatest preachers of all time. And, and because of that, he would often kind of teach and lecture and, 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 and whatnot uh, on, on the subject of preaching for preachers and pastors in training. 
And at one point, he was uh, teaching about preaching to a group of preachers, and he said this, present-day preaching, we're told, does not save men. The churches are not getting any converts. But there is something even worse than that in the situation as I see it, and that is this present-day preaching doesn't even annoy men, but leaves them precisely where they were without a ruffle and without the slightest disturbance. Now, in reading the Gospels, there's nothing which is quite so clear as the fact that Jesus Christ and His preaching had one of two effects upon His congregations. He either saved men or else definitely antagonized them, caused them to object and persecute and threaten and taunt. As our text shows us this morning, I don't think that same critique could be leveled at the prophet Amos. His preaching was definitely annoying. Uh, to the doctor's point, uh, Amos's annoying preaching isn't really even an aberration in the church and in the Christian life. His preaching, which brought offense and opposition, is a, is a pattern we see from beginning to the end in the Scriptures. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, all, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, we, we, need, to, we need to get it into our heads that real Christianity is never the mainstream. Real Christianity is never at home in this world as it currently is. Real Christianity is never at home in any country. It's never at home in any city. It's never at home in any political party. Real, authentic Christianity is never mainstream. At some point, it will always be at odds with this world and the times it finds itself in. And because of this, if, if you're truly following Christ, seeking to live for Him and represent Him faithfully in this world, people will be offended. It will bring opposition. It should be expected. And so we find Amos 7 instructive for us this morning. Here we see the big idea that God's truth will sometimes offend and bring opposition. God's truth will sometimes offend and bring opposition. We're going to look at that big idea by simply looking at the truth that offends in verses 7 to 9 and the certainty of opposition in verses 10 to 17. So first we find here the the truth that offends in verses 7 to 9, if you want to look there. As we begin to see, uh, last week we saw Amos is receiving in this part of our text a, a series of visions. And uh, as we come to 7 to 9, we come to a vision of, of certain judgment here, which instigates no intercession from Amos, as we saw last week. In this vision, Amos sees the Lord standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to him, Amos, what do you see? And Amos said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. And I don't know if you see it or not, but he's really trying to emphasize that there's a plumb line here. He's trying to make the plumb line thing obvious. And that just begs the question for some of us, what on earth is a plumb line, right? Okay, so, so a plumb line was a tool used in the ancient world that was like a, a string with a, a long string with a metal weight attached to it, okay? And, and uh, it had a number of uses, but one of the uses uh, was for making sure that something was level. 
So this was before we had spirit levels, you know, that we have now. You kind of place it on a wall and make sure it's nice and, and level. But at that point, they would, if they were building maybe this pulpit, they'd put a, a board across the pulpit here and then attach a plumb line to the end of it. It would hang down. And if it, the plumb line was straight up and down, then that means the pulpit is straight. But if it's kind of, if it looks crooked, that means the, the pulpit is not level. It means the wall is not level. Well, similarly here, uh, that's how the plumb line is being used in the vision, as a level. We, we see here Israel is a wall, as it were, and uh, that, that the Lord had built this wall, but now the Lord is setting a plumb line in the midst of the wall to determine whether or not it's straight. And the symbology is important here because if you were to do a study of the way the words righteousness and wickedness were used in the scripture, you'd find that the, the word righteousness is usually associated with, with something being straight and sound. But wickedness is associated with something being crooked and, and contorted. And so he's, he's saying here, the Lord is saying that Israel in her sin and in her social injustice is crooked and unrighteous. This is what the plumb line finds out and reveals. And of course, that also begs the question, what is the, the literal standard by which we are revealed as righteous or wicked? What, what does the plumb line represent. The plumb line represents nothing other than God's holy word. The plumb line represents God's words. God's word is the plumb line by which our lives are measured and judged. The, the, the commands and instruction of God's word is that which reveals whether or not we are righteous or wicked, whether we're holy or sinful, whether we're good or evil. God our creator, he's our creator, he's our judge, he's our cosmic king. And the standards, his standards are the standards by which we are judged. And his standards are revealed in his word. And the bad news is that you and I have all fallen short of the glorious standards of the glorious God. You and I are deserving of his eternal judgment. We have not loved God with all of our hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have continually followed the devices and desires of our own hearts. We've sinned against God in thought and word and deed. We've sinned against him in what we do. We've sinned against him in what we left and uh, what we don't do. We sin against God. And his plumb line, his word, reveals this about us. It reveals that we're wicked and sinful and crooked. It reveals that we're wicked. And it revealed the same thing about Israel. As we've already seen in Amos, Israel had been committing gross social injustices. They've been overlooking and oppressing the poor. They've been bearing false witness in court. They've been stealing from the poor and living lavish lifestyles on their backs. They've been, they've been sexually violating household employees. They, they'd offered empty worship and prayers and sacrifice. They'd even worshiped idols instead of the one true God. And God's plumb line has revealed that they and we are wicked and deserving of God's judgment. And so the Lord says, I will never again pass by them. And that's, that's a, a reference to the Passover, that's Passover language. He's saying, I passed over Israel in the, in the Exodus, refrained from judging them in Egypt. 
But now they've become like Egypt themselves, and so I'm not going to pass over them anymore. I'm going to judge them the same. He says, the high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. The high places are those, are those shrines throughout the kingdom that they sacrificed on, sometimes the idols. The sanctuaries are those, are those state-sanctioned temples set up by the king, Jeroboam. And, and then the house of Jeroboam, of course, is, is the family and dynasty of the king in Israel. And all this the Lord says, are going to come crashing down, decimated to a pile of rubble. And now centuries and centuries removed, I think you and I can see that that's, that would be an offensive message to 8th century B.C. Israel. It would be an offensive message. But, but don't you see that our message as Christians still today is no less offensive than that. We still proclaim God's word as the authority by which our lives are judged and measured. We still proclaim that all humanity is sinful and stands condemned by God apart from Jesus Christ. We still proclaim that a final judgment is coming in which any who don't repent and follow Jesus will spend eternity in the lake of fire. That's offensive. And what's more is I would remind you, I'm not the only one in our church who has the responsibility to declare that message. You own that responsibility too. Remember what we saw last week, earlier in chapter 7. We, we, we looked briefly at the, at the prophethood of all believers. We've all been filled with the Holy Spirit so that we all might be faithful representatives for the one true God, whether you stand in a pulpit like this or whether you work in a factory or a farm or a school or a shop or, a, or, or the home or the hospital or wherever. Wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you are, you are there commissioned as a representative of Jesus Christ. And the implications of that are, are myriad. Last week we saw the implications of that for intercessory prayer. But, but, but another implication is that the truth of God's word is to be on your lips whenever the opportunity comes. That means speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ when the opportunity comes. That sometimes might mean standing against injustice and speaking out against injustice. That might mean contending for the universal ethical norms of God's word as we saw in the the second sermon of our sermon series in Amos. And friends, let me tell you, sometimes that's going to offend some folks. I remember a while back I had an opportunity to, to share the gospel with this, uh, this young man at the gym that I used to work out at. And uh, I was there, I was getting my bench press on, and um, this young man sits on the, on the bench next to me and, and starts talking. And, and so he asked me what I did for a living, and I told him I was a pastor, and, and that kind of launched us into this long conversation wherein I learned that he wasn't a Christian, but he'd kind of been seeking, and his seeking had taken him to this this church in the area, and I knew this church in the area. I knew that this church was not a church that believed and preached the gospel. And so I told him, like, hey, you probably shouldn't go to that church anymore. You should find a church that will tell you about the gospel. And he said, what's the gospel? And that just made it really easy. So I told him, I said to him, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. We're all sinners who deserve God's judgment and punishment. And I was really just getting started, but at there, he he interrupted me. He said, nah, that's bad. I said, that is bad. 
But that's what makes the good news so good. You see, friends, the good news isn't the good news until you can understand and know the bad news. And the bad news is that we're all sinners who deserve God's righteous condemnation apart from Jesus Christ. And that we must repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That kind of message offends. But that's the message that our king sent us to tell. And now if I can add some some caveats to that, I wish I didn't have to, but in this age of hyper-partisanism and and uncivil discourse and divisive-ism, if that's a word, we might need to be reminded that offending others is not inherently virtuous. Right? There's, there's nothing praiseworthy about needlessly offending others. There's nothing righteous or bold or courageous about being quarrelsome or argumentative. And yet sometimes we Christians can be quarrelsome and argumentative and seek to do so in the name of Jesus Christ, which does not faithfully represent Jesus Christ. We're called, as Paul said in Romans 12, 18, to live peaceably with all so far as it depends on us. We're not called to needlessly offend our neighbors. If we're going to offend our neighbors, let it be by loving them and telling them the truth found in God's word. Let it be by speaking the truth in love, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.15. Speak the truth in love, meaning, meaning don't shrink back from sharing the truth of God's word. That's not loving. But in your, in your declaration of God's word, you must also still do so in a way that is gentle and kind. You might do this, uh, compare this to the work of a doctor. You know, a doctor who refused to tell a patient about a bad diagnosis simply because they're afraid of offending them wouldn't be loving their neighbor well, would they? But at the same time, a doctor must have good bedside manner. You know, he or she must break the news gently, not with the blunt force knock to the head, but with gentleness and kindness. Well, similarly, we might say that Christians are to have good bedside manner. We're to share the truth concerning sin and judgment and repentance. But we're to do so with gentleness and kindness. We're to speak the truth in love. And that's what I want to call us to this morning in this, in this piece here. And I want to call us to that from two angles. If we're going to offend our neighbors, first, make sure that it's God's truth that offends as it pertains to the content. Okay, and here's, here's what I mean by that. If you're going to offend your neighbor, make sure that you're standing on the truth of God's word and not your own personal opinions. See, it's far too often Christians offending their non-believing neighbors by contending for or against certain voting blocks or, or contending for or against certain approaches toward a, a pandemic or contending for or against whatever, fill in the blank. Expending our relational and social capital with our non-believing neighbors on matters of personal opinion and individual conscience, that's not what you're called to. Don't forget who it is you represent as a follower of Jesus Christ. Don't forget on whose word you are to take your stand. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Notice Amos didn't go into Israel to proclaim his own personal opinions on Amaziah or Bethel or Jeroboam. He went to proclaim the word of the Lord. And so for you and for me, if we're going to offend our neighbors, so far as it depends on us, make sure it's not with our own personal opinions. But with the truth found in God's holy word. 
Next, if you're going to offend, make sure that it's God's truth that offends as it pertains to your conduct. So the content, but then also the conduct. We need to watch our conduct. Sometimes it may not be the content which offends, but the manner in which we deliver it. Don't you know that, that God's people can sometimes deliver the truth of God's word in ways that are smug and demeaning and rude and aggressive? My friends, the the fruit of the Spirit has no exclusion clause. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 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 self-control. These are not options. So when, 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 even when we're delivering and defending the truth of God's word, the are, these are not options. Being aggressive doesn't make you prophetic. It makes you aggressive. Being a jerk doesn't make you bold. It makes you a jerk. Watch your, conduct, your content and your conduct as you represent Jesus Christ in the places in which he has called you. Go there to the factory or farm, the school or the shop, the, the home or the hospital, not contending for your own personal opinions, not offending by being rude, but by speaking God, the truth of God's word in love and gentleness and kindness. And then we, we need to move on. And so even when we speak the truth in love, we, we need to recognize we're still bound to unintentionally offend sometimes. We're, we're still bound to meet with opposition at some point, which brings us next to the certainty of opposition. Look next at verses 10 to 17. And here, Amos meets with the opposition, with this opposition because of the offense taken toward his message. And so Amaziah is is the the high priest in Bethel, which is the sort of religious establishment, okay, in Israel. And uh, this would be like the the head priest at the National National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., kind of getting into it with some, you know, podunk country preacher without a seminary degree. This is is the full weight of the uh, establishment, religious establishment in Israel coming against this nobody, Amos, this nobody. And uh, so this is who Amaziah is, and as such, he, he really doesn't like what Amos is saying. And so he opposes Amos first by writing to King Jeroboam about Amos. And whether he, he intentionally misrepresents him or accidentally misunderstands Amos, we don't know. But he writes to Jeroboam and he says this, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. In other words, Amos, or Amaziah is saying, Jeroboam, Amos has, has conspired against you. He's trying to instigate a revolution in which you're killed. Now, is that, is that right? Is that what Amos said? It's not. It's not what he, that's not what he said. He's, 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 he's not calling. He's not trying to instigate for a political upheaval. He's merely proclaiming God's word of sin and judgment and repentance. And, and Amos, or Amaziah didn't even include those categories. He didn't, he didn't include Amos's rebuke of sin or, or the, the uh, call to repentance. And and Amos didn't actually say that Jeroboam would die by the sword. He said that his household would be cut off by the sword, meaning his family will eventually be knocked off the throne by an invading nation, and his dynasty will be cut off. You see, he's misunderstood and misrepresented here by Amaziah. And this is one thing, as a Christian, that we need, as Christians, we need to learn to expect and not be surprised by. You will inevitably be misrepresented and misunderstood in this world if you endeavor to live faithfully as a follower of Jesus Christ. If you speak about sin, get ready. You're going to get called a bigot. 
If you, if you speak about sexual immorality and live within the biblical sexual ethics, you're going to be called a puritanical prude. If you talk ab- about abortion, you're probably going to get called a chauvinist who wants to control what women do with their bodies. If you speak about racism and racial justice, get ready to get called a woke SJW. If, if you talk about greed and the plight of the poor, you're probably going to be called a Marxist. If you talk about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and the final judgment, you might be designated an intolerant fundamentalist who's living on the wrong side of history. Come to expect it. These kinds of things happen. You're bound to be misunderstood or misrepresented in this world. It happened to Amos, and if you live for Christ Jesus, it's going to happen to you too. But then Amaziah not only writes to Jeroboam, he also enters into a personal confrontation with Amos, which, you know, it's somewhat, it's kind of admirable. He doesn't just talk about the guy behind his back, but he goes to his face. It's nice. And this is what he says to him, starting in verse 12. Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. In other words, he's saying, go to Judah, go home. We don't want you here. Go home and, and, and earn your living there as a prophet. That's what he means when he says, go eat your bread there. He's saying, go earn your, your wages there. We don't want you here. Don't prophesy here. Go home. We don't want to hear your, sin, your message of sin and judgment. And again, just as, as, as you need to expect being misunderstood and misrepresented, if you're seeking to live as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, every once in a while, you're bound also to be told to go away or to take, take your message elsewhere. You're bound to be told, this is probably more common, is for you to be told, listen, it, it, it's fine if you believe all that stuff, but just keep it to yourself. Religious convictions are better kept personal and private. Have you ever heard that? Religious convictions are best kept personal and private, which is ironic because that's a religious conviction and one that's not typically kept personal and private, is it? And yet that's one of the ways in which you're going to encounter opposition in the Christian life. Go away. Keep that stuff to yourself. But then moving on, notice, notice how Amos responds with, with this humble confidence to Amaziah's opposition. In verses 14 to 15, Amos responds to Amaziah and he says this, I was no prophet, nor prophet's son. That means I didn't train under any other prophet. I didn't go to, to seminary. I didn't go to prophet school. But I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. It's a farmer and a rancher. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. He's saying, look, I'm not anyone special. I don't have any impressive credentials for this. I'm a farmer. But this is what the Lord told me to do. He's the one who called me. His confidence is not in his credentials. His confidence is not in his experience, in his intellect, in his position. His confidence is in the word and calling of the God who sent him. And without that, I'm, I'm convinced that we'll fail to live authentically as followers of Jesus Christ. That we'll fail to speak up as representatives of Jesus Christ. If we lack the assured conviction that the gospel is true, that God's word is true, that we've truly been called by him into this life of discipleship, we'll cower and live functionally as atheists. Amos was confident in God's word and in God's calling. And because of this, notice how he presses on with courage in verses 16 to 17. 
Notice Amos goes on proclaiming the word of the Lord in a particularly hard word. This is offensive. One that's li- this is a word that's liable to get Amos killed. He says to Amaziah, Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, that's what you say, but listen to what God says. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Now, initially, let me, let me just say, I, I know that's probably somewhat shocking for us. What, especially the part, why would Amaziah's wife and children be punished for his sin along with him? To us Westerners, that, that might seem kind of unfair. It might seem harsh. But we need to understand something. We need to understand that the principle of corporate solidarity was essential in an Israelite worldview. Okay, as, as 21st century Westerners, we tend to emphasize individualism and individual responsibility. But in Israel, they, they did emphasize that, yes. But they also knew, they understood that the actions of an individual had profound effects on their social context, and that a social context had profound effects upon an individual, for better, for worse. And so it's, it's not abnormal for an entire family or community even to be responsible, held responsible for the sins of an individual or a few. And yet still, with that said, I don't think I'd encourage you to go around telling people that their spouses are going to become prostitutes and their children die by the sword and, and whatnot. I wouldn't encourage you to do that. I, I feel like I can say with confidence that the Lord has not commissioned you particularly to do that. And yet, you are called to speak about something that's just as radical and just as offensive as that. And that's the final judgment and the dangers of hell. And that really takes just as much courage to proclaim as Amos displayed here. It took deep and profound courage for Amos to proclaim this word to Amaziah's face, a man who has the authority in the nation to have him killed. And it takes deep and profound courage for you to talk about sin and judgment and repentance in this cultural moment. Such concepts are often seen as ludicrous. Such concepts are bound to be met with opposition, and so it takes courage to persist and proclaim. Of course, we need to be careful here, because the reality is that in our particular tribe of Christianity, we're often guilty of having what people have sometimes called a persecution complex. We can be quick to cry persecution, even when the word's not merited. I think that's because we can often just be overly sensitive Just because someone verbally disagrees with you does not mean you're being persecuted. Just because someone might challenge a truth claim you make or or want to get into a spirited debate, that doesn't mean you're being persecuted. That's just part and parcel of being a a healthy human being, having healthy conversations with others. It doesn't mean you're being opposed or persecuted. There's real persecution in opposition in our world today and even light forms of it in our particular nation, but that's not it. And yet, if, if I can say this, if you never face opposition on account of the Christian faith, something's amiss. If all people speak well of you, something's wrong. 
It may mean that you're not living faithfully as a public representative of Jesus Christ or that you've so tamed the Christ that you're witnessing for that it doesn't offend or bring opposition at all. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop, is well known for saying, he said, there's a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think they have enough, a cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. Is that the kind of Christianity that you possess? It might be if you never face any opposition. Because truly living the Christian life is bound to bring with it opposition. It's a certainty. Christianity is never at home in this world. Real, authentic Christianity is never the mainstream. When opposition comes, like Amos, you can press on with confidence Encourage. Why? Because along with the certainty of opposition, we also have the certainty that the same God who called Amos is the same God who called us, and that he'll never leave us or forsake us. Amos, Amos based his confidence and certainty in this confrontation in the God who called him. And the same God who called him from the hills and fields of Judah is the same God who called you out of sin and darkness and into life and light. And he did so by calling his own son from the pleasures and perfections of heaven to go and live amongst the people of Israel as a man, as the man Christ Jesus. And he traveled in Israel in his day, like Amos, with a message of offense Because of that, he faced opposition. He proclaimed a message which was true but offended, and he faced opposition by the religious establishment there in Israel, and he faced opposition by the Roman authorities, and the opposition he faced was far more costly than what Amos faced here. He faced beating and flogging and crucifixion and death. But we know, based on the testimony of Scripture, that he was beaten and flogged and crucified and killed, not just by the hands of Israel and the Romans. That They were merely the gloves in the hands of God. Christ suffered and died in the hands of God the Father so that you might be freed from the eternal judgment that you and your sins deserve. You and I deserve eternity in the hell of fire. We deserve to be opposed by the living God. But Christ died so that while we might face opposition from man, we'll never, ever face opposition from God for all of eternity. And three days later, Christ rose from the dead and later ascended into heaven so that you might know for certain that he is Lord and Savior. And with that certainty, you are sent to go into this world, not with a cheap Christianity, which offends no one and costs nothing, but a costly Christianity, which requires sacrifice, which brings offense and opposition, but with which also comes the promise of the glory of eternal life when Christ returns. It's a certainty because Christ Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, gave us his word. And so with that, we are sent out to go be annoying. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this word. We give you thanks that 
Your word came to us and annoyed us. But that you didn't leave us in the power of our flesh when we encountered this gospel, but you made us alive by the Holy Spirit so that we might turn and believe and repent and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that, that as those who have turned and believed and obeyed, that we would then continue to obey and grow in obedience as we're sent out into the world to proclaim that same message that annoyed and saved us, that we might be those who annoy and save others, the instruments of your hand. Lord, use us for the glory of your name and use us for the fame of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.